afternoon. The meeting will now come to order. This is the regular meeting of the Land Use and Economic Development Committee. I'm Supervisor Malia Cohen, Chair of this committee, and to my right is the Vice Chair, Supervisor Scott Weiner, and to my left is Supervisor Jane Kim. Our lovely clerk is Miss Andrea Osbury. Um, and I also would like to thank John Stackus and Jonathan Gumwalk for assisting us with uh, SFGov TV. Madam Clerk, do you have any announcements today? Yes, please silence all electronic devices, completed speaker cards, and copies of any documents to be included as part of the file should be submitted to the clerk. Items acted upon today may appear on March 3rd, 2015, Board Supervisor's Agenda, unless otherwise stated. All right, thank you very much. Could you please call item number one? Item number one is the ordinance amending the environment code to require construction emissions on minimization plan. Great. Thank you very much, colleagues. I am the author of item number one. Uh, just as a reminder, last year I introduced two companion pieces of legislation that strengthened uh, the city's regulations of construction and development impacts on residents' air quality in the city. The, the first one, which was unanimously passed by the board, required enhanced ventilation systems for projects inside the identified air quality hotspot zone. The one before us today requires a construction emission minimi minimization plan and monitoring program for all public projects in the hotspot zone, including requiring the use of higher technology construction equipment to minimize diesel emissions. Now, as you know, many studies have shown that uh, there's an association between exposure to particulate matter and, and uh, to, to significant uh, human health problems, which also include aggravated asthma, chronic bronchitis, reduced lung function, irregular heartbeat, heart attack, premature death in people with heart or lung disease um, due to exposure to di diesel exhaust. Thank you. The southeastern neighborhoods suffer disproportionately from close locations of sources of air pollution, which is one of the reasons why the residents of District 10 have higher rates of asthma than any other and other respiratory conditions. The city and county of San Francisco can reduce the exposure of diesel emissions from off-road diesel equipment by utilizing the cleanest off-road diesel equipment on public work projects or wherever possible using alternative forms of power. Now, it's important to note that, um, that clean construction mitigations have always been a requirement of CEQA. And today's projects in the hot zone will be required to use cleaner construction equipment as a CEQA mitigation measure. By moving these requirements into the baseline standard of our city's projects, we are actually streamlining the process for public work projects. Previously, we would do a separate air quality analysis to tell us what uh, we already know and impose clean construction requirements as a mitigation measure, adding time and money to the permitting process. Well, now... I'm going to bring up uh, staff from the planning department. I think we have Wade and the Department of Public Health, Karen, um, to briefly go over, thank you, go over with us um, about, about the a little bit about the legislation. So there's a short staff presentation. Thank you. Thanks, Karen. Um, my name's Karen Cohen. I'm here on behalf of the health department to um, offer our full support to this legislation, to reiterate the things that um, the supervisor just told you all. I, um, I know that I've shown this committee this graphic before, and the purpose of this graphic from EPA was to 
really reinforce that the inflammation caused by particulate matter and diesel particulate matter causes both respiratory disease and cardiovascular disease. Um, this is a very good illustration of showing why it would do both things. And, and I just wanted to point out that um, heart, and, heart failure, heart conditions, and um, stroke are leading causes of death in the top five causes of death for San Franciscans. And if we look at this, which is the age-adjusted hospitalization rates for heart failure, it's going to look very similar to our air pollutant exposure zone. Uh, you can see north and south of market, the financial district, and the southeast sector, Bayview-Hunters Point. And now you can see the same type of profile of... Um, where we're concerned about. And so it's very important for us that as an environmental justice standpoint that we do not want city finance construction projects to add diesel emissions to these neighborhoods um, that are already burdened by poor air quality. Um, the engine infiltration technologies mandated by this ordinance will prevent this from occurring. Um, the, the evidence is, is really quite strong. The Air District has issued several reports, 2011, uh, was a particular report in 2010 was their clean air plan. These are the two key facts that I have learned from their plans. Particulate matter, particularly the fine ones that we call PM 2.5, that's a smaller diameter of 2.5 micron or less. These fine particulates are the air pollutants which pose the greatest burden on public health in the Bay Area compared to all other pollutants. They account for more than 90% of premature mortality related to air pollution in the Bay Area. And then if we look at the component of particulate that's just from a diesel fuel, um, we have an added hazard, and that is as a carcinogen. And the Air District has said that diesel particulate is responsible for over 80% of the total cancer risk from toxic air contaminants in the Bay Area. So for both those reasons, I thank you for your support today. Yeah. Great. Thank you very much. Let's see, Wade, would you like to comment? Yes, I just have a short presentation. So good afternoon, Chair Cohen and Supervisors. My name is Wade Wicker from San Francisco Planning Department. Uh, as Supervisor Cohen mentioned, the item before you today is about protecting the public's health while um, providing more certainty to the development review process for projects, um, for public agency projects. The ordinance aligns city law with mitigation measures imposed on projects subject to CEQA. Both this ordinance along with Article 38 of the Health Code are part of a larger strategy, the Community Risk Reduction Strategy, which the Planning Department and DPH are working on to improve air quality and reduce exposure of sensitive uses to air pollution. For this proposed ordinance, we have received unanimous resolutions of support from the Planning Commission and the Environment Commission. So just a little background quickly on the existing ordinance. Um, Acknowledging that the harmful health effects, the board took action in 2007 and adopted the existing ordinance. The ordinance requires cleaner construction equipment already, um, and it's individually enforced by uh, different contracting public works agencies. The real heart of the ordinance relates to either a tier two engine or what's called a verified diesel emission control strategy, um, VDEC acronym. Uh, the EPA and California Air Resources Board started regulating 
the amount of emissions that could come from a con construction equipment in the mid-1990s. Um, what this chart illustrates is basically that there's four tier levels, and as you get to be a higher tier, the, the equipment becomes cleaner and the standards become stricter. So the, the one I want to highlight um, is tier two because that's the existing ordinance requirement, and this applies to new engines only. This does not apply to existing equipment, but existing equipment often la lasts 15 to 25 years, so uh, the California Air Resources Board also adopted a separate regulation called the, in yes, Supervisor Cohen. Do you have a copy of your presentation? I do, Could yes. we have it, please? Yeah, I have a couple. Sorry, I know some of the, the numbers on this chart may be a little hard to read, but the numbers aren't really as important as um, just illustrating the point that there are these different standards that apply to new engines, and over time the equipment has gotten cleaner. Um, but as I was mentioning, for this only applies to new engines, and for existing equipment, uh, there's a regulation that went into effect um, just last, or I'm sorry, 2013, that requires construction equipment companies to slowly clean up their equipment over time. Um, one of the ways they can do this is through this VDAC, this Verified Diesel Emission Control Strategy. It essentially is a, a filter that you can put on an existing engine to reduce particulate matter even further. So if you look at the orange um, and you have a tier two engine, a new engine, in um, 2004, let's say, and you put a filter on it, it reduces particulate matter additional 85% beyond whatever that standard was for tier two engines. And how this relates to CEQA is um, subsequent to passage of the existing ordinance in 2007, the Bay Area Air Quality Management District uh, released new guidance that documented the harmful health effects from air pollution more than previous guidance. Most jurisdictions, including San Francisco, look to the Air District when evaluating air quality impacts for projects subject to CEQA. This new guidance required most development and construction projects in San Francisco to hire a consultant to conduct a time-consuming and costly air pollution modeling. The results of the modeling often required for publicly funded projects, cleaner construction equipment beyond that required in the existing clean construction ordinance. This, this requirement was often imposed on projects subject to CEQA through mitigation measures. When you have a mitigation measure under CEQA, it leads to additional costs and time for projects that would have otherwise been exempt. So on this, this um, arrow just illustrates if you have a project that would have otherwise been exempt and you have a mitigation, then you either have to do a mitigated negative declaration or an EIR, environmental impact report. Uh, given this burdensome process, uh, planning and DPH collaborated with the Air District to create this map. I'm not going to talk about it much further. We talked about it for Article 38, but essentially for construction, it means is if your project's located in these blue zones, then you are subject to a CEQA mitigation measures. 
As an example, the planning department is currently reviewing um, for CEQA a public project for a health clinic in the Bayview. The public project would normally be exempt from CEQA, but it's located in the air pollutant exposure zone. Therefore, uh, it's subject to this higher level of review and additional cost and time. In order to determine what the mitigation measures were for CEQA, the planning department needed to identify feasible mitigation measures, uh, which was done through research and outreach. This, this chart here um, is actually brand new data that I got from the California Air Resources Board. We had originally done uh, research back in 2012 that had a similar trend. But what this chart shows is essentially new engines become available as the economy picks up. So um, after the, when the recession hit and there wasn't a lot of construction going on, there wasn't a lot of new engines. So we, we get the question of why aren't we, re we requiring tier four engines for the air pollutant exposure zone? And the reason was we don't really think it's feasible at this point yet because these tier four engines haven't become widely available. And that's shown in the uh, pie chart below, which documents about 15 to 20% of all engines in the entire state are tier four, where if you require tier two, it's, it's a little over, it's about 60%. And by requiring that uh, v verified diesel emission control strategy, you are essentially almost equivalent to a tier four engine. So the real changes to the ordinance are what I already described as required per CEQA. Outside the air pollutant exposure zone, you're subject to the existing requirements. Inside the air pollutant exposure zone, you're a tier two engine and a verified diesel emission control strategy. There's also a monitoring plan associated with this, which I'll just briefly cover. So first and foremost, this. This is a health protective ordinance. It reduces emissions between 89 and 94% for particulate matter compared to an engine that has no emission standards or filter. Um, it is uh, through CEQA, mitigation measures would no longer be required because they would be required per city regulation. For example, that earlier health clinic I mentioned could proceed with an exemption instead of a mitigated negative declaration. And then it also allows for a greater ability to monitor for compliance. Um, the state has a regulation that requires uh, all construction equipment to have the six character red sticker on both sides of their equipment. And a member of the public or somebody from an individual city agency can write down these characters and go online and see whether or not the engine is tier two, tier three, tier four. So with that, the planning department encourages you to adopt the proposed updates. Thank you. I'm available to answer any questions, as well as uh, Kruti Singha from Department of Environment is also here. Thank you very much for that presentation. Um, Supervisor Kim. Okay. Sorry. I was having some mic issues. Um, Thank you, Supervisor Cohen, for um, introducing this really important legislation, and I'd like to be added as a co-sponsor. I had some questions. I'm not sure if it's uh, directed to Department of Public Health or to planning. Um, I think that this is a really great step forward, and I think it's really important. 
um, that we have this legislation in place, particularly as we're seeing the uptick of construction, both public and private projects, um, in large swaths of the, the blue zone area that um, was put out on the PowerPoint presentation. I had a, a number of questions on kind of the enforcement piece um, because that's the challenging point. Um, and I think the, what we're putting into legislation is really good. Um, I just want to know what we're going to do to make sure that we have the resources and staffing that we need um, to make sure that we can enforce this on our public contractors. Um, things like, you know, not leaving your diesel truck idling for more than two minutes. You know, how do we make sure that we enforce that? Or is there good kind of training programs, kind of specific things that we're going to put into place even within the contract itself? Um, to ensure that um, these violations aren't going to happen in the first place so that I don't have residents calling um, in complaints that we have to enforce on. And two, if there are complaints, you know, what are the resources that the city has to make sure that, we're, that uh, the contractors are in compliance? Again, I support everything that's in here. Um, you know, we just have a number of ordinances on the books that our residents rightly write to our office and call our office to complain about, and I often find that we don't have the resources to properly enforce it. So no question, more statement? That's a question. Oh, well, that was a question. Yeah. Okay. So is the question, do we have the resources to actually implement so I, the I had, I asked two questions. One is, are we thinking of putting into place specific things into the contracts, right, in our public projects um, that will ensure that in advance of all of this, that proper training happens and there are specific kind of punitive measures to ensure that these contractors comply with this legislation so that they there isn't you know, a violation, A, in the first place, but B, if there is, what resources do we have in place to enforce this legislation? All right. Supervisor Kim through the chair. On the enforcement side of things, um, in developing this ordinance and the research, we did a lot of outreach to all the city agencies that are going to be subject to the ordinance, and we've done a lot of education to them as well, and that question has come up pretty much at every individual agency. Uh, one of the things that we've developed in doing this outreach is um, sort of a template for a plan. The, the, the ordinance talks to a construction emissions minimization plan. And uh, we developed basically an Excel, a simple Excel spreadsheet that contractors can fill out before they start construction and then maintain throughout construction. And, the hope is that uh, if the ordinance passes that we continue our educational efforts with each of these individual agencies because some individual agencies have already been subject to this through CEQA and they've had some of these similar questions of how how are they going to monitor this. Right now the planning department's monitoring it through CEQA um, and we're trying to educate them on that. So, so in terms of resources, I don't really anticipate it will be additional resources that are needed from the individual city agencies. It will just be more of an education of understanding the requirements of the ordinance. In terms of compliance, yeah, in terms of compliance, it's, it, um, it is subject to each individual agency. Um, I'm actually drawing a blank on what the, uh, the ordinance specifically says in terms of, um, if a contractor is in, in compliance with the plan, but I believe it says that uh, they could be subject to the um, 
no longer having the contract or be, being removed. Okay. So, um, sorry, I was trying to pull up the ordinance. So, the enforcement body is each agency? Correct. So, it's not the Department of Public Health. So, we would actually have to find out which agency contracted out that public project, whether it's DPW or the PUC. Correct. And they would be responsible for sending someone out um, to enforce violations of this legislation. But the punitive measures could be the end of the contract midway I, through the project? I, I'll have to relook at the language, but I think that's essentially what it says. That doesn't feel like the right punitive measure okay. because I don't know what agency is going to stop a project midway with a street torn up and say because you violated the ordinance we're going to take this contract away from you and leave the neighborhood, you know, in shambles in the meantime. Well, I will say, I mean, there are things built into the ordinance that allow for waivers. If, um, if a particular piece of equipment just feasibly isn't available, the, the contractor can ask for a waiver from that particular requirement. Um, I, I would have to relook at what the ordinance language says. Excuse me, the Ledge Digest has a, a great emphasis on quarterly reporting from the project so that the public would have a, a public record that they could consult. I'm going to jump in the here. Uh, the city attorney, John Gibner, would like to okay, add some comment. Sure. Deputy City Attorney John Gibner, just to, to um, follow on about the, the various enforcement possibilities, uh, this doesn't really go to your question, Supervisor Kim, about, about how departments will monitor, um, but in terms of what the potential remedies are, uh, every contract will, for, for a major public works project, will require that the contractor comply with the clean construction requirements. So noncompliance could result in uh, suspension of the contract, termination of the contract for a material breach. Um, uh, um, or uh, or potentially debarment, which is a process that follows a, a, uh, a hearing. Um, so a range of options. Oh, and also uh, non-payment. Uh, we could suspend payment to the contractor. So there are a range of options short of just terminating the contract immediately. Um, hope that helps. And, and, and did the agencies feel like they had the capacity to do that? Because I really like this ordinance. I think that there are a lot of good things in here. I just... You know, our, our office almost on a daily basis fields emails and calls from our constituents regarding violations to the planning code, whatever code, um, and, they're, and they're real, they're actual violations. And then we find when we follow up with the departments that they don't have the resources to actually enforce against um, the violator. And so it becomes a frustrating point for both our office but also our residents where they're saying this is the law, enforce the law, and then we get kind of empty or, you know, non-responses from the departments, not to their fault, but just they don't have the resources. And so anyway, I, that's why I'm very sensitive um, to that when we um, think about um, enforcement in general. I, I just want to make sure the proper things are in place so that the neighborhoods are actually getting what they deserve, which is greener, cleaner um, construction, you know, when it's paid for by public taxpayer dollars. But I just want to make sure that that is going to be the actual outcome. Well, agreed. Um, and 
just specifically, uh, section 25.10 uh, talks about enforcement for in the ordinance, but in terms of individual city agencies worrying about the, um, the, the resources to be able to enforce, I haven't heard that specifically, um, but that is a concern. You know, in the planning department, we face that reality, like like you mentioned, on a day-to-day mm -hmm. -day basis. And um, I, guess I don't I want don't, to put you on the spot. Uh, yeah. I mean, as as you know, as we move forward with legislations like this, it would I think it'd be good for us um, to have a process by which we think about the resources that are necessary, not just for this legislation, um, but all legislation that requires a level of enforcement. Um, but anyway, I just want to put that concern out there. Hopefully it's something that we can think about. Ideally, it won't be an issue because everyone will comply because <laughs> they'll be well-educated and um, that will be in place. I, I think a lot of it would get discussed in the pre-construction stage because let's say you had a, a small contractor and they don't own this equipment. They're going to have to lease it. Mm -hmm. And if the leasing's not available, they're going to ask for a waiver. So the, the, sort of the sort of thing that would lead to noncompliance can already be negotiated up front as a part of the process of, of yeah. contracting, and that's all that local hiring Yeah, part the of equipment things. piece is easier. What I'm more worried about is the vehicles idling, kind of equipment running. That is much, much harder to enforce, right? My, oh, unbelievably I so, my, yes. Yeah, I, I leave a, my truck idling for 10 issue. minutes versus two minutes. The equipment piece I'm a lot less concerned with, but I... I and, I, and I think... Maybe all, not at this hearing, but in the future. It'd be good to have some thinking about that. And I think all hopefully good public policy has an education component for the public. And um, part of this ordinance has signage requirements. So, hof And hopefully there's other aspects of this ordinance that the public can become more aware of. And I, I oh, know I'm you're confident saying, that members of the public <laughs> in, in will get well-educated on this and will be calling our office once this Got ordinance it. goes into place when they see violations. I'm not worried about that part. Okay. I just want to make sure that when they do call us, we're going to be able to enforce this. Understood. Thank you. All right, seeing that there are no, call, no other colleagues with questions, let's open for public comment. I have one comment card here for Katie Lydell. Why don't you come up? Two minutes. If there's any other speakers I'd like to speak on this item, please uh, follow Ms. Lydell. Uh, good afternoon, Supervisors. Um, my name is Katie Lydell. I live in Rincon Hill. Um, for information, I am the president of the uh, South Beach Rincon Mission Bay Neighborhood Association. I've actually lived there for 20 years, and I, I would like to thank you, Supervisor Cohen, for sponsoring this legislation, and my supervisor, Kim, for co-sponsoring, because um, you've heard a lot of data and hard facts and uh, practical things, but I have more practical information for you. I have lived there since 1995, and every day I dust black dust off of all of my furniture. And um, very interesting, last week I had my carpets cleaned, and these people cleaned the, the common areas of my condominium building also. And without my asking them, when they walked in the door, they said, my gosh, these carpets, everything is filthy. They're getting worse and worse every year. So that is the kind of thing that I really worry about. Um, I've been there for a long time. I breathe this stuff in every day. Yes, I know I live by the Bay Bridge. I knew that up front, but it is getting worse. I look at the map that shows the pollution, and I see I'm right in the middle of it. And it's not just me. I worry about my neighbors, 
and children and young people who are in the neighborhood. So I really urge you to keep pushing for these kinds of things to go through. I see this is just one thing, um, but I thank you, um, and I would like to thank Karen Cohn, too, for keeping me in the loop. Please support these things. Thank you. Great. Thank you very much for your comment. Are there any other members of the public that would like to speak on this item? Okay, seeing none, public comment is closed. I would um, now like the, um, the, the, the committee to make a motion, hopefully a positive recommendation. Motion made by Supervisor Kim, seconded by Supervisor Weiner. Supervisor Weiner, is there a comment you'd like to make? Uh, yes, thank you. Um, I just want to thank you, uh, Madam Chair, for sponsoring this uh, legislation. Uh, we have a lot of uh, work going on in the city now, construction work uh, and infrastructure work, and it's all very important. We need to add new housing. Uh, we need to do so much work on our uh, uh, roads and other infrastructure, and it's, it's exciting that we're uh, in this time where we're actually starting to address some of these needs. Uh, but there are challenges that come along uh, with that work, uh, and uh, uh, dust and pollutants are certainly part of that, and uh, it really uh, uh, is important that we do everything we can to make sure that this work is done in as clean a way as possible. Um, I also want to say that we, uh, this really also points to a, a related issue just in terms of transportation uh, in general, and the more that we can get people onto alternative forms of transportation, particularly public transportation, uh, the more we'll be able to further reduce uh, uh, pollutants. So thank you, and I will be supporting this legislation. Great. Thank you very much for your support. Madam Clerk, did you get the motions seconded? Okay. So um, I believe, let's see, this item will go to the full board with a positive recommendation. Thank you. Madam Clerk, could you please call item number two? Item number two is a resolution imposing interim zoning controls for building permits for commercial uses for a 12-month period. Excellent. Thank you. This Supervisor Kim is the author of this item. Um, Supervisor Kim will make a presentation at this time and lead the discussion on this item. Thank you. Thank you, Chair Cohen and colleagues. Um, thank you for consideration of the interim controls that are before us today. Um, I introduced similar interim controls uh, last year in October of 2013 and have since then been working with the planning department to address the loss of housing due to the conversion of residential units to commercial office space. There has been evidence um, that pre-existing office space has been converted without the benefit of a permit to residential use in multiple buildings on Market Street and the South of Market. Our office learned this when we were contacted by tenants um, at several buildings, actually, um, all the way from Rincon Hill um, through the South of Market to Mid Market, um, letting us know that they were um, receiving eviction notices from their landlord and finding out many, um, many times for the first time that their buildings were not legally permitted to be residential. Um, and once the office market became hot again, um, property owners were then turning it around after they had illegally converted to residential, um, evicting those tenants and attempting to bring it back um, into the office market. The housing, though not permit permitted, if located within a pre-1979 building, is oftentimes protected by rent stabilization ordinance and provides affordable, accessible housing to tenants. Um, we have heard from many of the tenants um, that have been in buildings such as this, and they often include artists, people working in the food industry, small business owners, teachers, and nonprofit workers. 
Um, these are the very types of residents that, and tenants that we are trying to keep um, here in San Francisco um, as, our mar- as our housing market continues um, to get more expensive. The choice, unfortunately, for many of those who are uh, facing eviction notices because it would be difficult for them to find housing in this rental market would be to leave the city, posing long commutes for jobs in which they may not be getting paid much or may be working off hours. San Francisco's well-being and vitality depends on the city having a range of housing, types, and prices for all of our inhabitants. The city is concerned about the loss of dwelling units and has stated in policies that, um, and has a stated policy that requires a public hearing and review of any application that will result in the loss of housing to a non-residential use. However, these protections do not extend to residential uses that have been converted without the benefit of a permit. The intent of this legislation is to control the removal of any existing residential use in commercial spaces and review the status of the original legal use until such time as the planning department can propose permanent legislation um, to address this issue. And again, to clarify the issue, when the market was not doing well um, in the 90s and the early 2000s, um, we found that many property owners, after the fact, had illegally converted their commercial office space into residential use, often for decades. Um, And then um, finding in the last couple of years that the office market was, again, profitable, we're now evicting these tenants, often whom they did not tell um, that these units were not going to be permanent residential units, and then um, and then attempting to convert them back um, into office space. Um, this uh, set of interim controls did pass um, last October 2013 um, with the unanimous support of the Board of uh, Supervisors. Um, the interim controls has since expired, and so this is a reintroduction uh, to continue um, the interim controls while we continue to work on this issue. I am offering um, a few amendments today. Um, I've provided copies to the clerk and Supervisor Cohen and Wiener um, to clarify that the conditional use requirement will apply to all permits to reestablish a commercial use. If the city has already issued a permit, then the permit will be no longer effective unless the city grants a conditional use authorization. And so um, uh, city, uh, just want to ask the city attorney if I need to read um, the amendments into the record, or if my description. Um, Deputy City reports. Attorney John Gibner again. Yeah, you don't have to read them into the record. Uh, if any member of the public would would like a copy, of course, the clerk's office can provide it to them. Great, thank you. Thank you very much. Okay, thank you. I actually think I have a copy. Okay, I'd like to take public comment on this item right now. This is item number two. I have a stack of cards. I will call up um, speakers. Please line up over here by the podium. We have Steve Whetstone, Melissa Rasero, Chris Baker, Carl Haas, Chandra Redak, Tommy Avakali Mecca. Remember, you have two minutes to speak. Thank you. Uh, Thank you for your time. Um, I'm a tenant, and uh, I'm just here because I'm concerned about what's happening in my building. Um, I had some neighbors. They kind of got evicted. Some of them got pressured to leave. And now I have um, an architectural firm for a neighbor. Um, 
This wasn't a problem until just recently, so I, I think what you were doing worked before with the interim control, but since then, um, there's been reconstruction in my building um, very frequently, um, and they're removing the lofts where people sleep over the kitchen so that, uh, and there was a real estate agent who actually had a key and came into my apartment trying to look. I, I, he said it was a mistake, but he wanted to rent, he, he's renting a commercial, the units next to mine that used to be filled with my neighbors to commercial real estate. So I'm hoping that you can stop business from profiting without the public profiting. I, I think they're doing this because it's profitable. And um, I think it's government's job to make sure that for business to profit, the public must profit also. Thank you. Thank you very much. Next speaker, please. Good afternoon. My name is Melissa. Um, I am a tenant that uh, is affected by this. I just wanted to thank you for um, enacting in stating these interim controls, and I encourage you to do it again. Um, having to move would mean leaving the city and perhaps the state and even the country, so it's very expensive. I have a friend who is in a commercial space whose rent increased by $600, and I couldn't afford the city if I were trying to rent at market rate, so I just encourage you and hope that you guys can support us um, in maintaining affordable housing. Thank you. Thank you. Next speaker, please, Chris Baker. Hi there, I'm Chris Baker, and I've lived in a affordable rent-controlled unit in the mid-market area for 13 years. I just wanted to uh, thank the supervisors for the interim controls and encourage you to renew them. I, I, th I think we, we, we need to hit pause so the city can figure out uh, how, how, how best to balance uh, this growth with its, its stated desire to, to maintain affordable rent-controlled units in this city. And I thank you very much, and I encourage you to vote yes. Hi, my name is Carl Haas. I am an affected tenant. I live in the market area in a building that turns out is commercial but has been rented res as residential. There would have been a few more of us to speak here, but my landlord served us all with a retaliatory lawsuit as we were walking in the door. So some of us will not be able to speak today. Um, I believe it's Zaxon Patterson is the uh, law firm. In any case, uh, I came to San Francisco in 1985 with a bike, a bag, and a lock to be a messenger. In the interim time, I've worked as a mover, as an activist, as well, now I'm a small business owner in the mid-market area as well. And if anybody tells you that we're not losing our um, basic workers, they're wrong. I can't hire people because they tell me for any amount of money, they can't afford the time and the, uh, the commute expenses to come to San Francisco. And these are people who don't need to come here. They'll get a job in their local town and nobody will come. One of the reasons is because when I got to San Francisco, I moved, spent my first year in a renovated warehouse um, youth hostel 
and then I moved into another commercial space. And eventually I raised my family here. But that's often the first, this kind of alternative housing is often the first stop on the way to the success that I had. Thank you. Thank you, Carl. Uh, and if also tenants could state how long they've lived in these units, that would be great. Chandra? Next would be uh, Tommy, Amy, Tori, Darren Brown, and uh, Naomi Ann Cooper. Please. Good afternoon. I feel very fortunate at having the, had the same job in San Francisco for the past 18 years. I work at Rainbow Grocery Cooperative, and we're told that we're the best health food store in the United States. And that's why I've been fighting for the past 15 months to keep my rent control housing so that I can keep my good job. Um, I've been uh, a resident at 1049 Market Street for the last 10 years. And in our building, there's a very diverse group of tenants, as you can see, artists like myself, activists, LGBT folks, people of color, physically challenged people, young and old. And we do represent what is most great about San Francisco, the diversity, the people. So I am urging the board to please give the interim controls a favorable vote. When our case, when our eviction case at 1049 first hit uh, in, in the fall of 2013, the press called it the largest San Francisco eviction case since the International Hotel in the 1970s. In our case, there are three large buildings and associated storefronts that are owned by the same group of seven people who have never been pleasant to deal with, to put it mildly. And yes, we were served today, just coming here to speak with you. We were served notices, lawsuits. It's like uh, voter intimidation. So a number of our people uh, were uh, managed to escape the process server and have not been able to come and speak with you today. And this is just an example of what's been going all along with our landlord, who is uh, basically a cutthroat person. Thank you for your comments, Tommy. Hi, my name is Tommy Avacoli-Mecca. I'm with the Housing Rights Committee. We are in full support of this legislation. Um, for us, this legislation is about stopping evictions and stopping the loss of rent-controlled units. I think that's what this all boils down to. Um, the units that will be affected by this legislation are usually under rent control. They're commercial units that have been rented for years as residential, and therefore, um, if they... Um, meet the requirement of the rent ordinance, which is that they were built before 79 and are in a building of more than one unit. They are under the protection of rent control, despite the fact that they might be illegal. Um, since these interim controls sunsetted in December, we have seen a number of cases. We've had calls to our counseling line from tenants in the mid-market area, as Supervisor Kim said, who suddenly were facing evictions by landlords um, who wanted to turn their apartments back into commercial so they can make lots of money. Because we all know that mid-market right now is hot real estate. And we know that it's much more viable to rent commercially than it is to rent residentially in mid-market. It's really unfortunate, but that's the reality. So it, it seems to me that we, if, if we don't have these interim controls, if planning doesn't eventually pass some kinds of controls um, um, on this situation, we are going to see the loss of a, a lot more um, artists, a lot more service providers, a lot more of the people who have made this city what it is. So 
the city has to enforce its policy. I know the city has a policy of protecting rent control units. This is the way the city enforces that policy, is by having these interim controls. Don't turn affordable housing into offices. Save our rent-controlled stock. People before profits. I hope you will send this to the full board with a favorable recommendation. Thank you. Thank you. Next speaker, Amy Tory, Darren, and Ann Cooper. Please. Hi, my name is Tori Antoni. Um, I'm one of the tenants at 1049. I've lived there for uh, 18 years now. And uh, first of all, I want to thank you guys for putting in the interim controls because uh, I, I feel like all the tenants there have, are embattled tenants over these last three years. And I think today we have a, a way of sending a clear message to uh, building owners that uh, that greed is not a lawful reason to evict somebody. And uh, I, I want to thank you guys for preserving affordable housing in the city. And I think it's important to put these interim controls back in to do so and, and send a message that, that uh, this is not the way to, to get rid of people. Harassing tenants is not a way to get rid of, rid of people. Um, and that, that's, that's pretty much it. I'm, I'm, I'm also want to see uh, my, my neighbors. I want to be able to, to have my neighbors next to me and, and, not, not, and know that they're not being threatened, you know, with their homes. I think that's, that's it's just horrible. So um, thank you, and uh, I would like to see these interim controls put back in. Thanks again. Great. Thank you. Next speaker, Amy. Not here. Darren. Naomi. Okay. Good afternoon. Afternoon. Uh, I'm a resident of 1049 for over 15 years, and um, you know I would like you to consider to you know consider the tenancy of the tenants at 1049, and to continue to maintain the interims and rent control that you've already that, that that is currently in place. And I speak on behalf of all the tenants of 1049 and all other tenants that will be impacted by this, you know, by the evictions and the different um, legal, uh, the, the different legal things that are going on with the tenants are fighting against. And we ask that you would vote yes on behalf of the tenants. Thank you very much. Naomi and Cooper. Next will be Raymond Castillo, JV, and uh, Teresa. Hi, I'm Naomi. I've been um, at 1049 Market since the end of um, 1998 in San Francisco for 30 years. Worked 20 years um, in the after-school programs in the Unified School District four years in the preschools in um, Chinatown. And um, as a teacher, I've seen um, a lot of teachers can't afford to live here. Families are struggling. There's so many people who just are moving out of town because they can't afford to raise a family in the city. There's um, about 80 units of um, places that used to be affordable housing in our um, building. And I think for the good of the tenants here and also just for the future of San Francisco, um, we're losing our teachers, we're losing our public servants, we're losing people that we really need for the city, we're losing artists. 
Um, I hope that the interim controls are, are reinstated because like most of the tenants here, um, I'll probably have to leave the Bay Area. There's just, there's no place for just regular folk <laughs> anymore. And a lot of us in this building are um, older or um, don't have a lot of money. Some of us are disabled. So um, thank you so much for putting these controls into place. And um, please reinstate them. Thank you. Thank you very much. Raymond Castillo? Oh, uh, please, come on. Hi, my name is Amy Bogart, and I'm a member of 1049 Market Street, LLC, whom purchased the building at 1049 Market Street in December of 2012, as well as a member of the ownership group for 1067 Market Street, in which similar code violations are seen. 1049 Market Street is zoned commercial and contains around 70 commercial office units, in which tenants have been illegally living in. In March of 2013, shortly after we purchased the building, ownership received a follow-up notice of violation from a previous 2007 notice of violation stating that people were illegally living in commercial office units and that we had 90 days to abate the code violation. On August 2, 2013, knowing that legalization would not be possible due to natural light requirements, we applied for and were granted a building permit to abate the code violation. Based upon this permit, on September 27, 2013, 60-day notices to vacate were sent to floors 3, 4, and 5. The next week, we attended a director's hearing, where DBI granted us 30 more days to complete the abatement. So with this time being given, on October 28, 2013, we sent the additional notices to vacate to floors 1 and 2. Immediately after these notices were sent, Corey Teague requested that DBI suspend our permit attempting to invalidate our notices, and the permit was immediately suspended. While the suspension release goes to the Board of Appeals in April, the interim zoning controls proposed today are intended to affect the future of our buildings. The controls would leave the building's uses in the hands of a very long and costly process through the Planning Commission. While it could take years to reach a decision, we would be forced to shoulder the liability of tenants illegally living in extremely unsafe units. With the large amount of fires being seen throughout San Francisco and the devastating tragedies that have resulted from them, it is simply irresponsible for the city to force our hand in allowing these potential fire hazards and life safety issues to exist. Thank you. Next speaker, please. <laughs> Thank you, supervisors, for your time today. Uh, my name is Ryan Patterson. I'm an attorney for 1049 Market Street, LLC and 1067 Market Street, LLC, uh, the property owners of the affected properties here. Uh, let's be clear that this legislation is intended to target these two particular properties. Uh, we're unaware of any other properties that have been raised as issues uh, subject to this legislation. Um, and we have filed written comments earlier today on this ordinance. Uh, resolution. We also object to not knowing what amendments have been proposed. Uh, the proposed amendments have not been posted to the Legislative Research Center's uh, website, and it's impossible for us to deliver meaningful commentary without knowing what the legislation actually says at this point. Uh, we also object to Supervisor Kim's participation in this process based on uh, demonstrated bias in favor of the tenants of these buildings. The controls 
here attempt to force the property owners to maintain a life safety hazard. Uh, despite, despite the Department of Building Inspections issuance of notices of violation secure those very hazardous situations. Uh, the controls also violate the California Environmental Quality Act, CEQA, and conflict with the general plan, which makes office use in this district a principally permitted use. The controls also conflict with both the city's building code and the state building code and are preempted by the state building code. The controls do not uh, seek to comply with the processes for amending or deviating from either of those codes. Uh, we also maintain that these controls do not apply to this property based on uh, the lack of abandonment of ongoing con uh, commercial use here. Uh, however, if applied to these properties, it would constitute a taking and we will file suit. Thank you. Great. Thank you very much. Good afternoon, Supervisors. My name is Pat Buskovich. I'm a licensed structural engineer. I've been practicing for 35 years. I specialize on unreinforced masonry buildings and existing buildings and seismic retrofit. I've been on the Building Commission, the State Building Commission, President of Structural Engineers Association, and President of the Applied Technology Council that wrote the city's soft story program. For a previous owner, not this owner, I spent three years studying and designing the proposed legalization of these units at 1049. I've also looked at 1067. And this is all before any lawyers got involved, and I just couldn't get it to work. To comply with city and state building code would require light shafts to be cut from the roof all the way down to the fourth floor, resulting in 30% of the floors of these buildings to be removed. That's like perforating a building like stamps. It would also have a perverse uh, effect of requiring the removal of the units on the sixth floor because you have to bring these light shafts down to the fourth and fifth floor. When you factor in the cost to build the shafts, and these shafts will trigger a seismic upgrade of the building, which will probably be in the order of $100 a square foot, you're, close, you're very closely approaching where the cost of the total work to the value of the unit is upside down. It's almost 400%. Or to give you another example, the cost to do this work will probably approach the value of the building, the total value of the building. Um, this building is not a candidate for conversion of office or residential. It poses currently life safety risk for exiting and habitability. Uh, it will become a burden on police transit and uh, public services. And if you're looking for affordable housing, the soft story accessory dwelling unit is a better way to add units. This building is not a candidate. May I ask a follow-up question through the chair? Please. Excuse me? Sir, we have a question for you. Please come back. Thanks for um, presenting your assessment of some of the original life and safety improvements that DBI had uh, requested the building owner to make. Um, at the request of the building owner, our office did help convene some follow-up meetings to that um, because the building owner had maintained that he could not maintain these units as residential because of the very issues that you brought up. Um, through some follow-up meetings, though, um, DBI, through its discretion, um, decided that they would make an exception. So if the city is making an exception that the building 
uh, owner no longer has to make these very changes that you've just enlisted, enumerated as being incredibly expensive and very difficult to do, which we agree with, why would you be bringing these points up now? Because uh, I don't think the building department, one, is the authority to grant this exception, and I've not seen the documentation. I've sat in, in every one of those meetings, and everyone's talked about it, but there's never been any documentation waiving not the city building code, it's the state building code and habitability standards. Plus, in those meetings, you also have fire department, which I'm not going to tread on this, but the fire department is a state agency. So until the state fire marshal says you can do it, you can't do it. I so think I our Department of discussed. Building Inspection disagrees with you, but thank you for your response. Thank you. Thank you. Next speaker, please. I'm sorry, what? Can I say one thing? Um, before the speaker continues, Supervisor Weiner. I just want to follow up one thing. The, the fire department is not a state agency. The fire department is a city and county of San Francisco agency that is also bound by our city policy. Thank you. Come on. Good afternoon, Supervisors. Um, my name is Raymond Castillo. Um, I work for SOMCAN, Saddle Market Community Action Network. Um, first of all, I want to thank Supervisor Kim for listening to her tenants um, and introducing this legislation. I'm here today to, um, to ask that you support the ban on converting residential unit to commercial use because we need to ensure the existing residents who has a home is able to stay in their home. In the, in the Saddle Market, we already have a lot of office spaces in the pipeline. The Central Soma area plan alone is prioritizing more office spaces in the neighborhood. Um, it's no secret. Everybody knows we're in a housing crisis right now. Um, there's, we need to protect the tenants, the people that live here, that strive, that works here. Uh, there's already a lot of people that's getting evicted through Ellis Act eviction. A lot of families, you, seniors, this, uh, people with disability that's being displaced in their homes. Um, so we need to protect the people that live and strive in this neighborhood, in this city. Um, let me see where I'm at. Okay. Also, our district, in the, uh, District 6 alone, we have the highest per percentage of people living in poverty. Um, right now it's 21%, which is higher than what the whole city estimated. That was uh, 11%. We need to protect ex uh, existing residents to be able to stay in their home because, one, housing rights is a, is a human rights. Uh, Housing is a basic human rights, and everybody needs to protect that. The building, uh, the build of affordable housing is a priority need right now, not another office space. And also, we need to protect the residents, the people that live in this neighborhood, what, what made this city what it is. Thank you. Thank you. Next speaker, please. Hi, my name is Teresa Imperial. I'm from the Bilsar Housing Program. And... Um, I, we also support the interim control of conversion of these um, residential units for um, to the um, commercial uses. As you guys all know, south of market, um, where we, most of our clientele live, um, we are experiencing to, to a lot of changes. A lot of it are developments coming into the um, to the area, and we see this threat. So that's why we really support this interim control because there's n there's no space pretty much for subtle market residents um, to live. And there's a lot of like commercial spaces and high luxurious um, apartments that is not really catered to the subtle market residents and community itself. So we do support this. Thank you. Thank you very much. Next speaker, please. 
Good afternoon, uh, Board of Supervisors. Uh, my name is Juvie. I'm the family organizer of the South of Market Community Action Network. Um, as an organizer, I've met a lot of families who need affordable housing. That's why I'm here to support the no to the conversion of residential units into commercial spaces. What we need are affordable housing for our uh, low-income families. Thank you. Thank you very much. Next speaker. Good afternoon, members of the board. Steve Collier, Tenderloin Housing Clinic. I'm, I'm here to speak in favor of the proposal, uh, the resolution. I represent a number of the tenants at 1049 Market Street. Just to correct a few um, items. First of all, this isn't the only building that's ever changed from commercial to residential in this area. There was the Grant Building, there was the Warfield Building, and a number of other ones in the past. Um, the, the landlord at 1049 Market know, knew the tenants were living there. Their lease specifically says, even though it's de denominated a commercial lease, that um, if residential use is allowed, and it talks about what will happen if residential use is allowed, including the tenants won't be evicted for using it residentially, the landlord always knew that the building um, was occupied residentially. It is not a fire hazard, as explained. Um, the light and air requirements have been waived by the Department of Building Inspection, and the um, building is fully sprinklered. It has a secondary means of egress, like most commercial buildings, and so it, it is not a um, health and safety hazard, except since the landlord did issue eviction notices, they stopped doing routine maintenance, so things that should be done, like cleaning the bathrooms, uh, sweeping the halls, uh, maintaining the elevator isn't being done, maintaining the front door of the building to be secure, that's not being done, but that's something that landlords who don't want to maintain their buildings do, not because it's a commercial building, but because these landlords don't want to maintain the building in the hopes of driving the tenants out. Um, the office use has lapsed. It's been well more than four years, and under uh, Planning Code Section 320, it has lapsed. So this is appropriate for this building. It's appropriate for other buildings in the south of Market, and we urge you to pass the resolution to the board. Thank you. Thank you very much. Next speaker. Good afternoon, supervisors. Thank you so much for holding this very important hearing. I'm a member of, my name is Kathy Lipscomb. I'm a member of the Anti-Displacement Coalition and also a member of Senior and Disability Action and uh, Alliance of Californias for Community Empowerment. Uh, it's really disheartening to walk through many of the neighborhoods in the city these, these, these days and it's being transformed into a place where middle Income, low income, and poor people are being shut out. That's obvious to everyone. Cranes fill the sky for office towers and still more luxury condominiums or luxury apartments. Cranes for the rest of us, the majority population, who need affordable units are very few. I join with those who are here today to ask that the few hundred people living who live in affordable rental units on Market Street be allowed to stay and that these properties not be redesignated to commercial units. That would mean for those Market Street renters the loss of their homes, proximity to their work, and departure from San Francisco would certainly be our loss. The loss of thousands of rental units through TIC conversion, condo conversions, Airbnb, the Ellis Act, buyouts, fake owner move-ins, bullying, etc., has been repeatedly documented. Let's do the right thing here and say no to these units being allowed to revert to commercial use. When commercial space is everywhere, an affordable apartment is a very rare bird indeed. Thank you. 
Thank you very much. Are there any other speakers? Please come up. Good afternoon. I'm a San Francisco native. I was born here. I attended school here. This is my hometown. I both live and work in the neighborhood that's being affected by these interim controls, and I'm being driven out of San Francisco's rental market because my job can't just be found somewhere else in a distant suburb where there's nothing else remotely as affordable as my current apartment in mid-market. For decades, our neighborhood has been a hard scrabble place. When landlords were unable to find the businesses to rent from them in the 80s and in the 90s and the 2000s, they transformed countless commercial spaces in the neighborhood into residential apartments. And now that mid-market is experiencing this renaissance, now that it's become a hot office destination, landlords of this neighborhood who've profited for decades off of hard-working people are now looking to evict us in droves, transforming modest, very affordable apartments into expensive commercial spaces. An earlier commenter said that only two buildings have been uh, in circumstances like this. That's just demonstrably, absurdly untrue. Uh, Mr. Collier already named several. I'll give you another one. Trinity Plaza, several hundred people were evicted for exactly the same reason cited for ours, and they were displaced just a block from our home. Clearly, this is a problem throughout the neighborhood and throughout the district. I'm really glad to see that this is targeting much of District 6, and I hope it will ultimately be extended to the rest of the city because this is not a problem limited to one area. We're just really the tip of the iceberg and the most deeply affected. Um, oh, may I continue? 30 seconds. 30 seconds. Thank you very much. Um, the city is looking to add 30,000 affordable apartments in the next decade. We're losing 80 and more right now. It doesn't make sense to wait for new buildings to be developed when right now we have ones being taken away. Um, please vote in favor of this legislation. Thank you very much. Next speaker. Bobby Coleman, San Francisco Tenants Union. I'm here to speak in favor of you addressing the, um, this type of situation. And I'm also concurring with uh, the comments of uh, Steve Collier of the Tenderloin Housing Clinic about those, um, those other uh, examples of commercial conversions. The only thing I have to add is that it, you often hear from property owners and business interests how they're going for what they want. And then in my experience, after the day is done, they're often saying, thank you for regulating us. Believe it or not, at the end of the day, they often say, thanks for stopping us, showing us the limits on doing what we do as business people. So I encourage you to continue to do that. Thank you. Thank you very much. Are there any other members of the public that'd like to comment on item two? Okay, seeing none, public comment for item two is closed. Colleagues, are there, is there a motion on this item? Uh, yes, I Supervisor would Kim. like to make a motion, but I also would like to make some closing comments. So I'll make the motion to move this forward with positive recommendation. Thank you. Seconded by Supervisor Wiener. Thank you. I just want to make a couple of as, points. Sorry, as oh. amended? Amended? Yes, as amended. Thank you, Madam Clerk. Um, just wanted to make a couple of comments in response um, to some of the public comment that was made. Um, first of all, I, I, 
I just want to be really clear, um, back in the fall of 2013, um, actually in December 2013, the mayor did issue an executive director explicitly directing all of our departments, including the Department of Building uh, Inspection, to examine possible loss of housing units from processing over-the-counter permit applications. This interim control merely closes the loophole um, that we are finding that a number of our buildings are in um, because they never legally converted um, to residential units. Um, Second, I just want to address the comment that I should recuse myself um, in this vote that, you know, that I'm actually offended that anyone would attempt to silence the the voice of their community by muzzling the voice of their elected official that is here to represent um, what we are seeing here in the city. Um, This is not... Um, while I think the tenants of 1049 Market have been the most vocal um, around this issue, they were not the only tenants that approached our office um, back in 2013, which is why these interim controls expand beyond Mid Market and go down actually to 2nd Street and Brannon all the way to Division. Um, we were getting um, complaints from tenants throughout the south of Market that were getting um, issued eviction notices for illegally residing in these illegal residential units. But the fact is, is that those residents were in those units because property owners were taking advantage of the fact that they were in a poor commercial office market through the 90s and through the 2000s time period, and they were illegally renting these units out um, to our residents who you, you have heard, many of whom have lived in these units for as long as 18 years. 18 years ago, these units were rented out and were and were... And, and were put out on the market as affordable residential units because those property owners could not lease them out to office. Mid-market, um, as, as many of you know, um, historically had the highest commercial vacancy rate um, in the entire city. Um, property owners, noting their inability to rent that out for that use, then decided to go out onto the residential market and illegally convert those buildings. Now that the market is doing well again, these same property owners are turning around to evict those very tenants that they profited off of over the last 20 years to to move into the office. Um, I believe that the legislation that we are introducing today addresses that very issue. Um, yes, I have taken a position. So to the accusation that I am biased around this issue, I do believe that preservation of housing of existing tenants is absolutely a priority of the city, and that is why that we've introduced this. I um, want to thank um, the tenants for speaking up. I know that this is a very difficult thing to do. Um, Um, While I get to stand here and expound on the issue and sit in the office and talk about protecting our tenants, you are the ones that are living in those units every day, harassed by your property owner, not getting the maintenance that you deserve around security of your front doors, with bathrooms, common area cleanup. And I just want to thank you for standing up on this issue because many tenants decide to walk away and move very, very far from San Francisco. We're not just talking about moving to Oakland. People are moving to Central California um, and, and farther parts of um, of the state because they can't afford to live here anymore, even if they have jobs, community, and family here. Um, and second, I do want to also thank um, the planning department, the mayor's office, Department of Building Inspection, and this board of supervisors for being incredibly supportive of this community over the last year and a half. Um, everyone has has really doubled down um, and been really creative and thoughtful in terms of how we can preserve these units. When property owners approach our office at first, they said they had to to evict these tenants because they couldn't comply with life and life safety hazards um, and other notices of violations. We worked with those 
with those departments to make those issues go away and figure out a resolution so we can keep those residents in place. Now, despite all of those efforts, the property owners are continuing to work to evict these residents, even though we have made those issues mute. Um, so anyway, I ask uh, the Land Use Committee again um, for your support um, of these interim controls, and um, thank you. Thank you. There's one um, comment before I call on uh, Supervisor Wiener. Um, please add me as a sponsor. One thing that is very interesting is, is that there's a similar movement afoot um, in the design district of San Francisco. You may recall last year um, the design center to Henry Adams was looking to convert um, office space and to push out existing tenants. And this particular time, um, these are PDR tenants. And um, something similar is was afoot uh, last year, and um, Supervisor Kim and I have been in discussion as we begin to try to figure out not, how do we pr protect tenants, whether they're uh, residential tenants or uh, PDR business. So this is uh, a, not a unique situation to District 6. Your neighbors south of you in District 10 are also experiencing a similar pressure that is happening simultaneously. Um, Supervisor Weiner. Uh, thank you very much. Uh, Madam Chair, first I want to thank Supervisor Kim and her staff for moving this forward, and I'd like to also add my name as a co-sponsor. Um, I have to say I was actually surprised when this came back uh, that this was uh, still uh, happening because I remember when this first came up, and, and as Supervisor Kim just articulated, the um, statements by the owner uh, saying that the city is forcing us uh, to evict uh, these tenants. And then I know that uh, there was a lot of work among the different departments uh, to figure that out, and uh, that was no longer the case. And so I, I find it very sad that we're still in a situation uh, where these uh, residents are being faced uh, with eviction. And so I think these interim controls are very important. And uh, I, you know, I will say that our housing, our housing crisis requires many different approaches, particularly around adding new, house, new housing of many different varieties uh, to address the fact that we have an exploding population. Uh, we need to house everyone. Um, but uh, keeping residents stable in their existing housing uh, is job one, and we need to make sure to do that. Uh, this is uh, one way of doing that in a, unfortunately, probably not a unique situation or not as unique as has been uh, described by some. And so uh, I will be supporting this, and again, do ask that my name be added as a co-sponsor. Thank you very much. Um, so. To the uh, members of the public, I just want to bring something to your attention. The interim controls that have been introduced and uh, are substantive and will have to sit in this committee for one more week. So this item has um, this item is amended and continued to our next land use committee meeting um, scheduled for March 2nd. That's correct. Thank you very much. Madam Clerk, could you please call item number three? Item number three is a hearing to discuss the city's late night transportation needs. Okay, Supervisor Weiner is the author of this item and will present and lead the discussion on it. Uh, thank you very much, Madam Chair, for uh, calendaring this uh, important item uh, for today. Uh, and colleagues, um, today we are going to be uh, receiving uh, from the Late Night Transportation Working Group um, the uh, report that it has methodically researched and prepared over the last number of months about what we need to do and what we can do as a city and as a region to improve late night transportation. Um, colleagues, you may recall that uh, in 2011, uh, I requested that our city economists prepare an economic impact report on uh, our late night economy. 
Uh, this city is a 24-hour city. Uh, we know that our nightlife is uh, uh, so central to the culture uh, and to the identity of San Francisco. Uh, but we also wanted to learn what is the actual economic contribution and scope uh, of this industry. And what we learned, you may recall, uh, was uh, uh, startling uh, to many who hadn't thought about this before, but I think intuitive uh, for a lot of us who have been working in this area, and that is that our nighttime economy is a $4.2 billion, with a B, uh, dollar uh, industry. It employs nearly 60,000 uh, workers, uh, and it contributes more than $50 million a year uh, to our city coffers. Um, and so we learned what I think a lot of people intuitively knew, that this sector matters. It matters to the economy as well as to the culture and identity of our city. Unfortunately, our transportation system in San Francisco uh, sometimes acts as if everyone uh, works 9 a.m. to 5 uh, p.m. and that no one goes to work or comes home uh, after that. And so uh, late night transportation, even early evening transportation in San Francisco uh, can be very, very challenging. Uh, and once you get past midnight, uh, it becomes hard and uh, sometimes even impossible. Uh, we know that uh, whether it's patrons trying to get home from a night out at a bar or a club or a live music venue and wanting to do so in a way where they don't need to drunk drive, or whether it's workers who get off late night or, early, or go to work early morning uh, trying to get to or from work on transit without having to drive and deal with uh, what can be a parking nightmare, uh, and people who often cannot afford to take a cab to and from work uh, every day. Um, we heard uh, about the incredible uh, deficiencies in our late night transportation system, whether it's the lack of 24-hour BART uh, or the uh, really sketchy reliability of our overnight uh, bus lines. And so almost a year ago, we convened a hearing at this committee uh, to shed light on these issues. It was a very helpful hearing where we heard from employers and from workers and owners of late-night establishments and from patrons, uh, and uh, we heard about the challenges that we have. Shortly after that, I authored legislation uh, calling for the creation of a late-night transportation working group. Um, and asking for that working group uh, to uh, produce a uh, strategic plan for what we could do in the short run uh, and in the long run uh, to improve late-night transit options. Um, the, that working group did form under the leadership of the Office of Economic and Workforce Development as well as the Entertainment Commission, uh, and I want to thank uh, Ben Van Houten from OEWD uh, as well as uh, Jocelyn Kane from the Entertainment Commission for co-leading uh, that working group. Uh, the working group consisted of uh, various stakeholders, uh, employers uh, and employer groups, uh, labor unions and, and workers who were not in labor unions, um, various city departments, various transit operators, not just Muni, but also Caltrain, AC Transit, uh, and BART, uh, as well as others, uh, including from our taxi industry and from our uh, TNCs, uh, with an interest uh, and a desire to improve late-night uh, transportation. Um, we also were able to engage uh, the San Francisco County Transportation Authority uh, because we knew that we needed technical uh, expertise around uh, transportation. And I want to thank uh, Liz Bryson from the uh, TA uh, for her really terrific work uh, with others 
others as well uh, on this uh, important subject. Um, so uh, the plan, as you will hear, and uh, the, we will, the working group will make a presentation, uh, makes a number of recommendations, uh, including beginning a process to expand all-night bus service. And I want to note that we're already seeing progress in that area with the recently uh, implemented BART AC Transit uh, Express uh, Transbay uh, bus line from the Mission to Oakland and beyond. Uh, we will also hear about Muni's plan to expand its AL overnight bus service later this year. Uh, the report also uh, recommends, as you will hear, uh, requesting that BART, Caltrain, and MTA produce studies documenting operational constraints for longer rail hours, uh, advocating for funding and project development for rail infrastructure needs to operate 24-hour service, including a second Transbay tube, creating a pilot program for location-specific improvements to improve the safety and comfort for all-night travelers, uh, like working with local businesses to install real-time transit information displays and installing pop-up taxi stands and improving the dissemination and availability of information on late-night transit options. Uh, we heard during this process about the significant safety concerns of people uh, trying to use late-night transit, particularly workers who get off at night, perhaps, ha perhaps have a lot of tips in their pockets, and if they have to wait an hour for a bus or a sitting duck uh, to be mugged. And we heard about the need to improve uh, the dissemination of information in an easy uh, to access way. Um, so uh, the working group did tremendous uh, work and I really want to thank every single person uh, who participated uh, in creating this document, uh, which will be a roadmap uh, with both short-term and long-term uh, goals. Um, I also want to uh, thank Adam Taylor in my office, uh, who has been working on this issue uh, for quite some time uh, and who uh, participated extensively on behalf of my office uh, on the, as part of the working group. So thank you, Adam, for that. Uh, and so with that, um, colleagues, if there are no introductory remarks, uh, we'll proceed to uh, our presentations. Um, and specifically, I want to ask uh, Ben Van Houten from the Office of Economic and Workforce Development uh, to present, followed by Liz Bryson from the County Transportation uh, Authority. Thank you. <clears throat> Excuse me. Uh, ben Van Houten, uh, Business Development Manager for the Nightlife and Entertainment Sector at the Office of Economic and Workforce Development. Uh, I'm joined ah, here by Jocelyn Kane, Executive Director of the Entertainment Commission, and we have been jointly leading the Late Night Transportation Working Group over the past nine months. Uh, Supervisor Wiener, just want to start out by thanking you uh, for your leadership on this. Uh, thank you to the mayor as well for his support of this. Uh, with the release of this report today, we have reached an important milestone for the Late Night Transportation Working Group. Um, with this roadmap, we now have both the next steps and long-term goals to improve late night and early morning transportation for San Francisco workers, residents, and visitors. Um, I also want to thank all the members of the Working Group, uh, including our partners at the Transportation Authority, for all of their help. Um, all of us spent quite a lot of time over the last nine months uh, working on this. Uh, the title of the report is The Other 9 to 5, and um, on, on 
on one level, that's an attempt to be clever, but on the other level, I think it, it speaks to uh, the emphasis that our work, uh, the, the focus we've placed on workers, late night and early morning workers, and the uh, needs that they have around transportation. Uh, very early in the process, as early as the, the hearing last April, we learned that this was not just a challenge for the nightlife and entertainment sector, that there are many industries uh, involving late night and early morning commutes that are impacted by the lack of transportation. Um, and in, indeed, in order for our city to continue to thrive and uh, as a 24-7 city, uh, we need to work to address the nighttime transportation uh, needs that exist. Um, the report makes clear, and, and, and we're going to walk through a, a, a little bit of the report uh, recommendations to an overview, but this is only the beginning of this work. Uh, we have a number of uh, steps moving forward, and, and I look forward to continuing to work with all of our working group members and other stakeholders to ensure uh, that our late night and early morning workers, residents, and visitors have access to safe, affordable, and reliable public transportation. And, and with that, I'll turn it over to uh, Jocelyn. Good afternoon. Um, I don't want to be repetitive. I'm, I'm up, not up here that often in front of you supervisors, um, but like last night, people were obsessed with JLo's dress. I'm obsessed with the nighttime economy. I will be here every time to, to ask you for more of the same. Um, and of course, to thank Supervisor Wiener um, for honoring his commitment to nightlife and public safety. Um, you know, we, I was here a little less than a year ago. We're here again. Um, to express our gratitude and to obviously make it clear how vital this this is and the real work starts now we're gonna go into some specifics and uh, you know without being repetitive uh, I think you'll hear that what we really need is frequent reliable and safe transportation it's what the public needs, it's what we heard they want, and we also have to get the word out. So as you listen to this, also consider how we can push out through whatever um, you know, lines of communication, because we can have the best service in the world, and if people don't know about it, um, they won't take it, and we can't sustain it. Um, so as you know, it's also an equity issue, and you'll hear about that, and so in light of the testimony we heard previously about evictions, I think that uh, this is along those same lines. It's really important. It's a lifeline service for some people, a lot of people actually in San Francisco. Um, so just want to say thanks very much. We are here to continue this work. And as always, I never leave the podium up here without making another ask. So <laughs> um, we would ask that the working group be maintained and funded to pursue additional study uh, and oversee the implementation of the next steps that will be identified um, in the, the plan um, and create a reality of this late-night integrated transportation um, that we're going to be talking about. Thanks very much. Uh, thank you very much. And uh, it is uh, my intent to make sure that we are able to keep the working group intact uh, to monitor the implementation and to really uh, bird dog that. So thank, thank you. you. Okay, uh, next I'd like to uh, call up Liz Bryson from San Francisco County Transportation uh, Authority to, uh, uh, to present. Or Mr. Van Houten, I'm sorry, did you sure. have? Sure, uh, no, that's all right. Liz and I uh, on the fly decided to divvy up the slides. Oh, okay, so, great. Um, so I think, Supervisor, you've already covered uh, where we started. And um, 
this is just to, to briefly flag really how varied uh, the, the, the members of the working group uh, have been, and I think that's been a real asset to have transportation agencies, uh, small businesses, labor leaders, uh, really a variety of stakeholders involved in what has been really a very collaborative process, and that's a testament to the uh, working group members. This slide uh, talks a little bit about our vision for late night, early morning transportation serving San Francisco. And um, you know, as you're going to hear uh, in, in Liz's presentation, uh, this vision really mirrors the feedback that we received from uh, participants in our survey. So we did an online survey. Uh, we also had paper copies available. Uh, over 2,800 responses, which, um, which I, th I think is a testament to how important this issue is, how much it matters to people. And um, you know, on one level, uh, the, the feedback we received is, is fairly common sense, but it also uh, uh, served as a helpful set of guideposts for this vision here. Uh, fast, reliable transportation, uh, network based on coverage and demand, improved security, safe streets, easily accessible information, safe, orderly, convenient loading and unloading, transportation options that are affordable, and then of course also 24-hour rail service uh, complemented by a network of local and regional buses. So that's the long-term vision in terms of, uh, I, I guess, the, the work that we've done and specific recommendations. I think I'll uh, turn it over to Liz. Thank you. Thanks, Ben, and good afternoon, supervisors. Liz Bryson, Senior Transportation Planner with the San Francisco County Transportation Authority. And as mentioned, I had the fun role of playing the technical expert to the working group. And I should note it wasn't just me, but also a consultant, Nico Latunich, unable to be here today, but also was an asset to the um, working group staff. So here, just wanted to walk through the process that we followed, how we got to where we are. Uh, it followed a pretty typical planning process. We laid out a process. We did some research to document existing conditions and understand needs. Uh, we worked from there to identify solutions, uh, vet them a little bit more, and then finally get them into the final report that is released today. Uh, there should have been report copies distributed to all the board members, and there are also some over there for any member of the public wishing to review. It's also available on the Nightlife SF website, nightlifesf.org. Uh, the report uh, walks through uh, 15 specific recommendations uh, and then proposes five immediate next steps to begin moving forward those recommendations. Also, it suggests two months to get a little bit clearer on the scoping to define roles, responsibilities, budget, and schedule of uh, the next steps that we are recommending. So starting with just a few highlights of the existing conditions analysis that we did, uh, we wanted to be able to speak to how many people are actually traveling during the, the late night hours, meaning 9 p.m. to 5 a.m. And it's about 250,000 trips happening on a weeknight during that time period. Um, and those trips split out with more of them happening in the 9 to midnight time period, about 85% of them. The other 16% happening between midnight and 5 a.m. I think one particularly interesting finding is that in that midnight to 5 a.m. time period, two-thirds of the trips are regional, meaning they have one trip end in San Francisco and the other somewhere else in the nine-county nine region. Um, the total number of trips is about 7% of total daily trips, but if we try to imagine them, one useful comparison point is that uh, they are equivalent to about three times the number of trips generated by a giant scheme. We also looked at mode share and learned that 
Despite how much public transportation options and coverage decrease as we get into the late night and early morning hours, the share of transit remains relatively constant at 20 percent. That um, speaks to the lifeline uh, value that transit provides, where for some people it is the only choice to get around. Ben mentioned the survey that we did. Um, again, it was available in English, Spanish, and Chinese online, as well as in paper format. Uh, it represents a population of people who care about late night issues, uh, not the sort of total population of San Francisco or the Bay Area region, but I think it's very indicative of the needs. Um, here we see uh, one of the survey response questions. This was asking people which um, issues affect their choices in terms of what, um, how they travel during the late night hours. Uh, red here is a lot, orange is somewhat. And uh, as has previously been mentioned, BART not running all night was by far the issue that people reported the most as uh, affecting their travel choices a lot. But beyond that, uh, several other issues were um, responded to a lot or somewhat affect travel choices by a majority of respondents, including that bus service is infrequent or unreliable, that bus trips take too long or require a transfer, taxis are too expensive or unavailable, concerns about personal safety or security when um, walking or biking, uh, as well as the expense of Lyft and Uber, and concerns about personal safety or security when on transit or waiting for transit. Um, in addition to this question, there's a lot of other interesting things we learned in the survey. Some of it is contained in the final report, uh, but the whole data set, both in summary form and as a data source, is available on the Nightlife SF website. Um, we also did stakeholder interviews and reviewed the testimony from the hearing a year ago to uh, really encapsulate all of the types of needs people experience during these hours. Um, based on that, we um, have arranged the types of needs we've heard into five major categories, um, and the report is structured around these. It includes availability and coverage, thinking in particular about the public transportation choices, uh, speed and reliability, safety and security, getting at both traffic safety as well as personal security, uh, awareness and comfort, and cost and equity. Uh, so um, one of the first things we did, uh, recognizing that transit availability was of particular interest, was just to map out what the service looks like at different times of day. So uh, on the left is a snapshot of what the uh, service looks like at 8 in the morning, the middle is at midnight, and the third is at 3 a.m. And it, as you skim from left to right, it's easy to see the number of options um, reduces dramatically. Of course, there is less demand during that time period, but it's also a little bit chicken and egg. Um, another interesting point is that uh, while there is less service throughout the city and the region, there is a pretty stark difference between how much service we provide locally on Muni as compared to the region. Um, Muni's OWL network pretty much covers the city within quarter mile stop um, of a bus stop, uh, not 100% but pretty close, whereas the region, it's a much more skeletal network of um, one AC Transit line and one SAM Trans line directly serving the city, although uh, AC Transit does operate uh, time transfers to additional service in AC Transit. Uh, in addition, the Muni OWL network operates at 30-minute frequencies, while the regional services during the week operate at 60-minute uh, frequencies, and the AC Transit operates at 30-minute frequencies on the weekends and is now piloting 20 minutes. 
speaking of that, um, there have been two pretty great and exciting efforts that have happened over the course of the working group meeting and talking about these issues. The first is the BART AC transit pilot to provide additional bus service um, in, and that, um, that effort includes new pickup locations at the 24th Street and 16th Street Mission BART, as well as a new line that serves the Pittsburgh Bay Point line, as well as upgrading to 20-minute frequencies up to 2.30. And I included a picture in the bottom left that indicates the working group's field trip to experience this service firsthand. On the right, we show a map of um, the SFMTA's proposal to expand Muni Al service that is anticipated to be approved for funding of Lifeline Transportation Funds at tomorrow's Transportation Authority Board meeting. Here, the uh, proposal would increase the frequency of the 108 serving Treasure Island from 45 minutes to 30 minutes, as well as add new lines to the OWL network, segments of both the 48 and the 44, to fill in gaps in service in the Potrero and Bayview-Hunters Point neighborhoods, recognizing that Lifeline is a funding source to improve transportation choices in communities of concern. So despite those um, exciting additions to the network, we also learned that the last time we've really taken a big picture look at what's, um, what services we provide late at night at the regional level has been about a decade ago. The origin of the creation of what's called the all-nighter network dates back to when we last approved bridge tolls in 2004 through regional measure two. Um, and at the time that that toll was uh, approved, there was a process to define uh, bus service in BART corridors that led to the launch of service in 2006. I found this um, as a press release still on the MTC website. Um, beyond some minor adjustments to track and monitor adherence to performance metrics required in, in the funding source, there really hasn't been a big picture look. And in a decade, a whole lot has changed in our region. So one of the low-hanging fruit recommendations that is coming out of this work is it's about time to, to do a refresh of the all-night bus service, considering both whether there's things we can do just to adjust the service that we have right now in a uh, resource-constrained way, as well as consider scenarios of expansion. So another topic of much conversation and interest relates to anything we can do to extend rail hours or one day have 24-hour rail. Uh, uh, based on the coordination we did with BART, Caltrain, and Muni, uh, it is not currently feasible for any of them to operate longer rail service hours than what they do right now. Um, there is something that's common in, in, the, in the, or not common, it's, it's a fact that you have to do maintenance every night. There's something called a maintenance window, and it is what it is right now. Um, that said, this has been such a topic of interest, and um, it felt like there was a desire for uh, more to better understand what happens in each each time, each minute of that maintenance window as a way to be able to think creatively as a set of stakeholders of, is there anything we can do to, to shorten that window or to be more creative in, in how we can allow for longer rail hours while not compromising the safety of the system? Um, at the same time, the long-term vision, if we really want 24-hour rail, um, we know we need to have more than just the two tracks that go under the bay right now. Uh, we need to have a system that allows for some tracks to be closed for maintenance while others are still operating. Um, but the good news is we're finally starting to talk about that as a region. Um, just recently, there's been discussion of this in the newspaper, as well as a study that has been kicked off called the Bay Area Transit Core Capacity Study that is 
is doing the early work of considering options for a second Transbay rail crossing, as well as additional muni rail infrastructure. Uh, something that I think is interesting is to bring together uh, one, one of the main reasons this study, the Bay Area Transit Core Capacity Study, is being moved forward, it relates to our daytime needs, which are more about crowding and running out of space, but to bring together the needs of the nightlife community and of our daytime needs all leading to the same solution is a nice one because in order to move an investment like this forward, we really need to be able to um, work together. Um, Ms. President, if yes. I may, um, uh, two things. First of all, um, with respect to uh, BART, and I want to acknowledge that uh, two uh, BART directors are here, Nick Chesefowitz and Robert Rayburn, who have uh, been working on this issue, um, uh, and we're, we're appreciative that they're here. Um, but uh, one thing that actually Director Giuseppewitz said at the press conference we held outside was, uh, which I had not heard before, was when you look at the number of hours that BART is not functioning, which is I think it was like 34 hours uh, or thereabouts a week, and the number of hours they're actually performing maintenance on the tracks, which was like 13 hours or significantly less. Has there been any analysis about um, what that discrepancy means? Obviously, there has to be a, a ramp up time and a ramp down time for the maintenance, but I, it, was, it struck me. So I, I can give you my understanding and then invite, I don't know if anyone from BART wants to expand on it, but the difference between the hours that are actually maintenance hours and the hours that the system is closed are the hours where the trains are all getting fully out of the system, the time it takes to power down the rail and the time it takes for the, um, the vehicle that you drive out to get into the tube. Once you get everyone in place to start doing the maintenance, that's how much time right. is left. But I think in terms of a point of questioning and something to explore in the white paper is what can we do to make that period shorter so we have more time to do the actual yeah. maintenance? Right, because it's almost a th nearly a three-to-one ratio, and, and obviously BART needs to do it right, and that there is clearly a ramp-up and a ramp-down time, but the question is whether uh, that can be condensed at all. Um, and I'm, uh, and I've been very publicly supportive of moving us towards the second Transbay tube, not just for BART, but we need to connect the Capitol Corridor to Caltrain and ultimately get high-speed rail up, to, up through the East Bay and up to Sacramento. But that's going to be a while until we get there. And so I, I do think that uh, we need to continue to advocate uh, to BART that it really take, make every effort to consider whether to, it can expand hours and whether that's seven uh, nights a week or whether it's adding an additional hour or two on Friday and Saturday night, um, I think they need to really make uh, every effort. Um, so on a, another um, uh, topic, and, uh, it's, and I, you, we made a reference to resources, and of course resources are not unlimited as much as we'd like them to be unlimited. Uh, and sometimes it's, uh, it seems like there's an eternal debate in transit about, um, uh, you know, we have the times of day, uh, daytime, rush hour, uh, where we have incredibly high transit usage. Then you have other times, for example, at 2 a.m. or 3 a.m., uh, where you still have uh, significant transit usage, but it's much less. And so uh, there is a, a school of thought that for every additional penny that we put into expanding overnight service, that's a penny that's not going into ensuring enough or expanding capacity, say, during 
uh, rush hour. We see this as well uh, when, and, and I, it is a continual, uh, 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 I have a continuing disagreement with the MTA uh, when we see during spring break or during winter break uh, when uh, the agent, when Muni will uh, convert its service into a, a skeletal service. So if you uh, need to go to work during spring break, you're going to have to deal with a skeletal uh, service. And so for the, even though there are fewer riders, for the riders that do depend on transit, whether it's at 2 a.m. or uh, on Muni during spring break, uh, it, it, that's sort of irrelevant to them. They still need to get where they're going. And so how should we think about the, that, that debate? It's a great question. I would say two things. The first is that I think one school of thought of how you plan a transit system is to think about it as, as a system. And a system, if it's going to work for people, needs to work all the time. And I think from a system school of thought, you can make, you, you could then design a system that uh, provides frequent coverage even during periods of less demand. Um, the other more, I guess, practical suggestion that we, we advanced through the report was you know, rather than first talking about funding, let's first define what we think the additional service we want is. And that's why the follow-on initiative to really look at both scenarios of cost neutral and scenarios of expansion. What are the needs of the people that are not being met right now? And, you know, define what it is and what it costs, and then we're in a much better place to move forward with making it happen. I think that makes a lot of sense. And I just want one last thing, and then I'll let you continue your presentation on that um, debate or discussion or whatever uh, it is. If we truly want people, um, more people to consider um, living without a car and, and, and relying on alternative modes of transportation, uh, then it, it is very important to have that consistency, whether it's during spring break or whether it's at 2 a.m., uh, because you can't just say we're going to give you great transit during the time when most people are using transit, but then if you're one of the smaller number of people using at these other times, uh, good luck. That's a, a great recipe to ensure that people say, I can't give up my car because even though I'm going to take transit when I can, it's not reliable enough for me at these other times. And so uh, I just want to continue to advocate that point of view. I'm going to continue to say that Muni is just wrong uh, when it scales back service uh, during uh, spring break or uh, during the holidays. It's just not the right way to run a public transportation system. Comment noted. Shall I continue? Yeah. Okay. So we talked about bus and rail. Um, and I wanted to shift to talk about uh, equity for a moment. Uh, we were able to look at the average household income of commuters and how it compares between daytime and nighttime hours. And here, if you focus for a moment on the red, orange, and yellow wedges, you can see that daytime, it's about a quarter of commuters are in maybe what you would consider low and moderate income brackets up to 62,500, those same income thresholds are about 50% of the people commuting during nighttime hours. Um, turning uh, for a moment, at certain times, especially uh, in the midnight to 5 a.m. period when transit options are at their scarcest, taxis often become the only uh, viable choice for some people to get around. Of course, they are more expensive. And so one of the recommendations that has already been touched on here is that 
one thing that we could do to make taxis a possibly more affordable option is to develop shared ride taxi regulations. Um, this is something that is authorized in the transportation code, but would require the SFMTA to move forward actually defining how, how those would work. And I know we do have um, Jarvis Murray from MTA's uh, taxi group that might be able to answer any questions. Did you have any on that? Uh, another theme of our recommendations uh, was identification of a lot of small-scale things that seem like they could really make a difference and happen quickly, uh, but that those things would all um, make sense to define within a specific corridor or a specific neighborhood or a specific district, recognizing that uh, a, a lot of different people that share the same street space would need to agree on what they want to see. Um, so here the idea is to develop a pilot program funded by challenge grants to work together between uh, stakeholders and agencies that can tell you what is feasible or not feasible to move forward with some of this low-hanging fruit. Information. Uh, this was a... a, a a topic we discussed at some length, recognizing that the information we put out about our late night transportation options isn't necessarily that easy to find and understand. Um, this is a screenshot from the 511 website that is our regional center of getting um, late night trans or all transportation information. Um, nothing particularly wrong with it. You can find what you need, but if you're someone that's never used it, the bus before and are trying to do it for the first time, this might look intimidating as might this. <laughs> um, and so then it perhaps is not surprising when we did our survey that a full or just about 50% of respondents indicated either they didn't even know that there was late night muni or transbay bus service or they knew about it, but they wouldn't know how to actually um, operate it. So our recommendation here is to develop and launch a comprehensive information campaign with targeted information in multiple formats, um, not exclusively related to public transportation choices. There's a lot of other things we learned about, for example, um, where taxi stands are, how a business can re request a taxi stand, a whole set of really interesting information that um, exists but could be better communicated and publicized. A fourth theme of our recommendations had to do with things where we couldn't quite come up with the right recommendation yet because we hadn't done enough data analysis. And so um, four different areas where we're recommending um, establishing a metric or two and tracking over time would be transit reliability, personal security, cleanliness, and traffic safety. Uh, so uh, just to summarize, I've touched on our recommended next steps that include refreshing our all-night local and regional bus service, pilot program for these location-specific improvements, a coordinated information campaign, beginning a monitoring practice, and then the final one would be continuing to convene the working group in some form, perhaps at less different frequency or with different stakeholders that are particularly interested in particular areas um, working in subcommittee. But the idea being that group is reviewing all 15 recommendations and um, modifying and tracking progress as appropriate. So I'm about to conclude, but I did want to close with one more important and positive finding, and that is that we uncovered that um, nighttime transportation access for raccoons to shopping is readily available. Um, it turns out that you, the, the raccoons can ride the bus from the Legion of Honor to Stonestown. Thank you. Thank you very much, uh, Ms. Bryson, for that final note. Um, and again, thank you to everyone uh, for this report. Um, colleagues, uh, if there are no questions or comments, uh, then I think we can move uh, to public comment um, on uh, item number three. Um, 
Madam Chair, if I, I don't. I yes, you thank you. We have comments. comments. And if we could, um, thank you. Um, and I do want to uh, first give an opportunity to our two BART directors, uh, Director Tsepowitz and uh, Rayburn, if you would like to make a comment. Coming up. Well, thank you for hosting this very important initiative. I was around in 2004 pushing for the uh, late night bus service in the regional measure two. Uh, that was just a beginning baby step. And we need to acknowledge that the constituents that I represent in the East Bay uh, represent a growing number of people who are transit dependent. And they are demanding better service and as you've indicated, the economy demands it. And so we have serious constraints. I've gone out with our crews late night. I've seen the limitations. It takes time to mobilize a track crew. Uh, they're only able to do so much every evening and then they have to pull back and uh, at 4 a.m. and let the trains go by. But I believe that there are things that we can do. We're, one, we definitely have to keep our commitment to running the late night bus services. As well, once we have new train cars, I think that's when we will have an opportunity to really re-examine how we deploy our equipment late into the evening. And I believe that we can make some progress with, as you suggest, a one to two hour additional service period on Fridays and Saturday nights at, at the start. Uh, I've looked at other systems throughout the world. SEPTA in London, SEPTA in uh, Philadelphia, WMATA in Washington, D.C., of course, New York City's uh, metro. Uh, these are systems that run late night service. They have many of the same constraints that we have uh, and there are models that we can follow and so I will be pushing to see that we get a white paper report that identifies the things that we can do in the near term with the delivery of the new cars. Thanks again for your Thank work. Thank you, Director. Director Giuseppowitz. Thank you so much, and thank you, um, Supervisor Wiener, for your uh, for your leadership on this issue. It's it's absolutely critical, and it's um, I, I recently got elected, and it's something that um, everybody uh, it was the most popular issue on my campaign, and that's certainly something that's been um, backed up by the survey, the survey of uh, which is the, the largest late night the largest survey um, uh, assessing uh, San Franciscans' attitudes to late night transportation listed, but late night BART service as um, people's number one concern. And I think that's something we really need to pay attention to and something we need to deliver on. Um, and that's, uh, and whilst 24 hour BART service is probably quite far away, so we shouldn't get anybody's hopes up, um, extending BART one or two hours into the weekend is something, on the weekend nights is something that should very much be possible. And, uh, and I'm gonna be joining my colleague, Director Rayburn in advocating for BART to um, explore the invest, to, to really do a sort of a thorough study of what, uh, what investments need to be made to allow us to get much more maintenance out of the maintenance window that we have. Um, because as you said, 13 hours out of 34 um, seems like something we could improve on. 
probably not tomorrow, but with the right investments. Um, and uh, and I also want to uh, to to sort of mention that uh, Bart has been running has been working closely with AC Transit to deliver a much improved uh, late night bus network. We have a pilot program going now, um, which has put 50 percent more 800 and 801 buses on the street, as well as an 822 bus, which is an express from the mission, which was previously unserved by late night Transbay bus service um, to Oakland, Berkeley. Um, Walnut Creek and beyond and uh, and that's something that hopefully we'll be able to extend that pilot into a full program and uh, and also extend the number of bus routes and the bus frequency that carry people from San Francisco to the East Bay and back in the evening and that's something that um, I'll certainly be advocating for and that we would really appreciate um, your, your all your support um, as, as in the city context and also in the regional context so um, Thank you. I, th I think this report is terrific, um, and uh, and provides a lot of a lot of important things that we need to work on. So thank you very much for uh, for having us speak, and thank you for all the good work that you're all doing. Thank you very much. Okay, I'll now read the names that we have: um, Kevin Carroll, uh, Bruce Oka, um, Robert uh, Del Rosario, uh, Glendon Hyde, Charles Rathbone, uh, Ben Blyman and uh, Tom Temprano. <laughs> Microphone from <laughs> Okay. Uh, thank you, Supervisor Wiener. Uh, my name is Bruce Oka, and as a lifelong transit rider, and a, I consider myself a native San Franciscan, even though uh, I didn't get here till uh, I was three years old, and I won't tell you how long ago that was. But one thing that I learned while I was serving on the board of directors of the SFMTA uh, was that we didn't have a very good transit system at night. And I would ride Muni morning, noon, and night as, as a director. And one of the things that I heard time and again, it's not safe to ride or work at night because I have no way to get home. And this is something that I know that as a, as a Muni user, I know I used to go to many, many Giants games at Candlestick Park, and there'd be many, many late night games. And I, I always have to worry about getting home. And I think that's the same problem because many of our residents work in the East Bay and have to come home to their homes here in the, in the, uh, in the city. And they should not have to worry about not being able to get home safely. So I think this is a... Uh, Long overdue. 
being, and we must do it. So whatever it takes, I'll help. I'll help you do it. Okay. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Oka. Good afternoon, Supervisors, and thank you, Supervisor Wiener, for uh, starting this program and getting things moving. I also want to thank the task force. My colleague Jessica Lum has been serving on that, and then also our friends with the Entertainment Commission and the Department of OEWD, as well as BART. Uh, our hotels employ 24,000 workers. Uh, we are a 24-7 business, so we have shifts that end at midnight. Uh, we hear stories of employees that are trying to maybe work a little bit of overtime but have to rush out because they want to catch a last train back to uh, where they came from to work. And it causes additional stress that obviously keeps uh, them from earning more money at some times. And then also our early morning employees as well who can't get in in time for their shifts. And the employees will look at options, and if they can't find options that they feel are safe or reliable, they drive. And we hear stories of employees that definitely carpool or try to pull together people, but their alternative is to go to a car because they don't feel either safe or they have the reliability to get to work. I think it's important to know that 57% of our workers in the hotel business live in San Francisco, so they do rely on our uh, transportation system as well to get to where they're going and to make sure that they can uh, work for us. I also really like that the report talks about specific corridors. One area of the city where we have 14 hotels and I think at least a dozen entertainment uh, establishments is Fisherman's Wharf. And that adds another layer of complexity when you're trying to get to a transportation corridor that's based on Market Street that additional routes and being have, have routes available for our employees as well as our visitors to use late night would help. So again, I just want to thank you for your leadership. Uh, we'll continue to be part of the group and want to make sure that uh, we can get to a place where we can have some um, great additional wins. It sounds like we're already getting some with the extension of some of the bus service at night. So thank you very much. Thank you very much, Mr. Carroll. Next speaker. Good afternoon, Robert Darrells. I am the Director of Service Development for AC Transit. And I'd like to echo the sentiments of the previous speakers in thanking the committee, as well as uh, Supervisor Wiener on putting together this working group. <clears throat> AC Transit fully supports the study and the recommendations. Um, it's been nearly a decade since the region has last looked at the all-nighter network, as, uh, as Ms. Bryson has, uh, Bryson has mentioned. Um, and there's a couple things that's important with that. So one, it's been, it's been 10 years since we last looked at this, and, and land use and demographics have changed throughout the region. Uh, if you're looking at you know, the Mission Corridor, if you're looking at even downtown Oakland, uh, those, the, the, the type of uh, land use there, uh, particularly at night, um, did not exist um, 10 years ago. So it's good to, to, to look at that again. Um, and the one thing I want to emphasize there is that when it was looked at eight years ago, it wasn't a regional issue. It was not just San Francisco's issue or BART's issue or AC Transit's issue. Uh, the, the, the region looked at it at a whole, and uh, MC, MTC took the lead on that. And I think the region needs to look at it again. The pilot service that AC Transit is, is uh, operating in partnership with BART um, is, is, is a good start, um, but essentially the service that is out there is, is, is lifeline service, so it is skeletal um, and can only, access, um, only be accessed by those um, it's convenient for, and that's not a lot of people. Um, so the service does need to be improved and it does need to be more frequent. Um, 
and frequency and, and where the service goes is one piece of it. Um, as uh, as uh, the presentation stated, uh, better safety, accessibility, and wayfinding um, become even more important at night than they are uh, in the daytime. And it's great to see that this study addresses all of those things. I just want to close and say that AC Transit is excited to work with our partner agencies and the region to implement the study recommendations and to seek funding uh, to, to implement. Uh, this truly needs to be a partnership uh, with the regional agencies to be able to effectively serve all potential users. And again, thank you. Thank you very much. Thanks, Peter. Hello, Supervisors. My name is Glendon Anaconda Hyde, and I am a former uh, entertainment commissioner. And I would like to start by saying one of the um, major concerns I heard as a uh, neighborhood representative was the noise and parties that go on in people's cars, especially in Jane Kim's district, late at night. So this will not only benefit the people who are wishing to go to clubs, but the people who live around them. And um, also, about three years ago, I moved out to the OMI, and I have been out possibly five times um, since then, and as a former drag queen, that's kind of sad that I am no longer going out to nightlife because I cannot get home. Um, I live on SSI, so I cannot afford cabs, and um, the other thing that this neighborhood really supports is a lot of students who um, probably also cannot get to and from nightlife in the city. So if you are going to continue this, I would like you to um, look into a, something along the M line um, being an, a late night option um, because People who live where I live now have very few options. Um, the only one I did have was the 14 late night, and after getting attacked on the bus, I no longer take that. So um, along with security, I think that that neighborhood really could use a lot more um, late night transit because there are a lot of people who go out living in that area. Thank you. Next speaker. Thank you. Uh, my name is Ben Blyman. I am uh, an owner of seven bars in San Francisco uh, with 175 employees. I'm also the founder of the San Francisco Bar Owner Alliance, which just accepted its 206th member uh, this week. Um, but today I'm speaking on behalf of uh, the California Music and uh, Culture Association, um, known as CMAC, of which uh, my business partner Duncan and I are the acting chairs. Um, First, CMAC wanted to thank uh, Supervisor Wiener um, and Jocelyn Kane and Ben Van Hooten for, um, for, uh, for leading this, uh, this group and for inviting CMAC to be a part of the Late Night Transportation Working Group. Um, we believe that uh, San Francisco is, going to, is, is headed in the direction of a 24-7, 365 economy. And uh, despite the best efforts of the city now, um, more and more nightlife customers and employees uh, will not be living in San Francisco in the future, um, and especially those with less means. Um, and for this reason, we feel strongly that the future of San Francisco is uh, kind of inextricably entwined with the surrounding communities of the Bay Area. Um, and we feel that San Francisco needs to take the lead on providing the late night transportation, and that's why we're so happy about uh, this process. Um, we feel the long run, BART needs to run 24-7, and we know that we can't just wave a magic wand to make that happen, um, but we think that the proposals put forth by the working group and uh, this committee um, are a fantastic first step 
um, toward uh, the future of late night transportation. Um, and finally, San Francisco is considered one of the premier cities in the United States and possibly the world, and we feel it's time that our late night transportation uh, system reflected that. Thank you. Thank you very much. Mr. Temprano. Hello, Supervisors. Tom Temprano, one of the co-owners of Virgil's Sea Room, a bar in the Mission. Uh, I actually wanted to take this opportunity to share the experiences of a couple of my employees, one of whom, when we were outside for the press conference, actually <clears throat> rolled up on her bike and was discussing the lack of late-night transportation as the biggest reason, reason that she was considering leaving the Bay Area. You know, she's worked for us for a number of years. She has to cut her shifts early uh, to try to catch the last part back. She's also, you know, living in the East Bay, not able to uh, spend time with her friends here in San Francisco late at night because there's no safe, reliable way for her as a woman to get home late at night. Uh, another one of my employees who I actually spoke with in between that time, and now I, I asked her, you know, have you ever taken the the Muni home from work at Virgil's? And she laughed. She said she would have to wait for up to 45 minutes on the street at Mission and Cesar Chavez to take a 14 to the end and then wait up to another 45 minutes on the corner of Van Ness and Market Street just to catch the buses she needs home. As a as a woman carrying cash at 3, 4 o'clock in the morning, she, she just laughed and said, that's impossible. So for me, and I think many of the other bar owners in the room, this is a, an issue of safety for our employees, for our workers. We have a responsibility to ensure that the people that work the other nine to five are able to get home just as safely and reliably as folks that work from 9 a.m. to 5 p.m. Uh, you know, I, I think also from the, the perspective of our bottom line and from this industry and its growth, uh, if you look at this survey, the majority of respondents said that they you know, on a number of occasions chose to stay home, to not go out to patronize our businesses, to not go out to uh, to uh, support our, our nightlife because there was no safe and reliable way for them to get home. So as small business owners, we consider this, you know, a matter of safety for our employees and our patrons. So thank you. Thank you very much. Mr. Rathbone. Good afternoon, Supervisors. Charles Rathbone on behalf of Luxor Cab. I want to say a word of thanks to Ben and Jocelyn and Liz and Nico. They did a great job of uh, presenting the issues and they provided timely, very helpful research. The working group's uh, final recommendations include three taxi-related proposals. They are for shared rides, pop-up cab stands, and ride subsidies. The most important is an app-based shared ride program for taxi cabs. The idea is to work with technology partners such as Flywheel to provide great value to customers through reduced fares. At the same time, uh, taxis will increase ridership, increase revenues, and reduce unpaid miles for drivers. Supervisors, this proposal is technically challenging uh, and also uh, challenging as a business proposition. Uh, research has shown enormous potential for shared taxi rides uh, but no one has yet demonstrated a profitable business model. So we need to incentivize uh, risk-taking and investment in this promising new approach to transportation problems. Another uh, taxi-related solution is to create pop-up cab stands in nightlife districts. We want to make it easier and cheaper for businesses to get approval for late-night cab stands. 
Lastly, we want to explore sources of funding for subsidized rides similar to the very successful paratransit program. That will be especially valuable for low-income, late-night workers who live in the East Bay. Uh, thank you, and we look forward to uh, participating in the working group. Mr. Bologna. Good afternoon, Supervisors. Um, I want to thank you for having this. This is a great thing. Being one of the uh, VPs of one of the larger neighborhood associations in the uh, region, I, living out in the Richmond is one of the farther areas for people to get to. And what I hear a lot of from people is, we can't get home. We can't go out because we can't get home. I get people talking to me about being kicked out of cabs. I've been kicked out of a cab before because I wanted to come home late at night from an area and it was just not possible. So starting this discussion, having this going, is something that's great for the neighborhoods as well as everybody else. And I just wanted to mention that. So thank you. Thank you very much. Is there any additional public comment on item three? Uh, seeing none, Madam Chair, may we close public comment? Okay. Public comment, public comment is closed. So uh, again, colleagues, thank you for hearing this today. I want to thank uh, the working group and also everyone who came out uh, today. Uh, this is a, a very significant uh, step forward, and sometimes these things can be daunting, especially some of the longer-term investments we need, such as the second Transbay tube to have 24-hour BART service. Uh, but what I really love about this report is that it clearly breaks down what are the short-term, immediate things we can do, what are the long-term uh, things, uh, what can be done at a very cost-effective way, what's going to require some more resources. Uh, and the fact that uh, BART and AC Transit have already uh, begun moving forward and implemented a new express line, uh, the fact that uh, Muni uh, is going to be moving forward later this year with expanded uh, AL service, and that really says that this has uh, risen onto the agenda and that we're seeing tangible steps forward. So I'm optimistic we're going to be able to implement um, these recommendations, and I know that the working group uh, will continue to advise us uh, on ways that we can make that happen. Uh, I do want to note two things uh, that came up during public comment that I think are important. Uh, one is um, a few speakers uh, talked about uh, workers uh, struggling uh, to get home and uh, the connection that that has with some of the affordability challenges we've had in San Francisco. Um, the late night uh, industry, the workers in that industry tend to be um, very middle class, working class. These are not super high paying jobs or jobs that allow people uh, to, uh, to get by and to survive and, and uh, raise families, but uh, they're not uh, uh, generally high paying uh, jobs. A lot of these workers cannot afford to live in the entertainment centers uh, of San Francisco. Uh, we have uh, plenty of, uh, of these workers who are living either outside the city in the East Bay or on the peninsula or uh, in the southern part of the city or the western part of the city where it's not cheap but it is more affordable than uh, some of the eastern and core parts of the city. And so, uh, so it's, it's not like folks um, are necessarily going from the Mission to the Castro or somewhere where if need be they can hop in an affordable cab or, or even uh, walk. Uh, these are uh, workers who if they don't have uh, usable public transportation 
uh, are either going to have to drive, uh, which can also be very challenging if you have to go and park in the late afternoon, early evening, or if you're going to work early in the morning in the mission or the Castro and you have to find a place to leave your car for the entire day. I'm not sure how you do that in an affordable way. And so we're putting a lot of these workers in an untenable uh, uh, position. And so it really does uh, matter for a lot of people. Um, also, uh, the, uh, we, um, we, the, the issue around cabs is also very important because uh, cabs provide a very strong uh, supplement to public transportation. And there are times when people are going to need to use uh, cabs, and I, I really like the recommendations in the report uh, around moving towards better shared cabs, uh, more uh, centrally located uh, cab stands, and other things to encourage people to use um, our cab uh, system. Uh, so colleagues, thank you for the time today, and uh, I look forward to continuing to work to make these recommendations a reality. Supervisor Kim. Thank you. I just wanted to um, thank Supervisor Weiner and um, the task force. I know that um, this has been an issue that um, uh, Supervisor Weiner's office has brought up since he's come into office, and I think that this is just um, such an important issue that we hear over and over um, from our constituents and our small business owners. I've been cornered at restaurants um, when owners uh, figure out who I am, and they just really um, drive home the point of how much late night transportation um, impacts their ability um, to do business um, and how many of their workers um, live far from the place of operation and often live um, in the East Bay and how important um, all night transportation is. So I think that um, having this report and having the data um, is really important. It's great to see kind of the categories of imp income, what services we do already provide, um, and, and the numbers. I, I had no idea that on any given night um, that there are more people riding um, late night um, public transit um, than post um, a Giants game. Um, I think seeing numbers like that is, is really, really helpful. Regardless, though, of the numbers, I, I just have to say that I, I agree that even if it isn't a large number, that we, we have to think about more frequent service because it's a safety issue. And I've often, I, I know I've posed this question to SFMTA, you know, what would it look like to have smaller shuttle services running um, kind of more quickly and more frequently throughout the city? Um, this has been an issue, I know, for our office with the 108 in particular, um, their bus line to Treasure Island. Um, while it's not per se um, a late night issue, it is the only way you can get on Treasure Island um, is the 108 if you don't own a car. You cannot bike there. You cannot walk there. Um, there you know, if you are in the city and you're trying to get home on Treasure Island, um, that bus is your only option or you have to get a car if you can afford it. Um, and so um, we've often been pressing um, the agency on what it would mean to have more frequent service, even if the numbers don't showcase a need for that, but just even for those five residents or those two residents that are waiting 30 minutes, um, you know, downtown, um, where there isn't a lot of um, pedestrian foot traffic, um, I think that safety is really important to push. And it's really great to see that AC Transit is also um, partnering on this issue. You know, we know that BART is at um, has certain needs around repair, although I don't completely understand it. Um, and I really want to push on, you know, us reconsidering even late night BART just 
on two nights of the week, on Fridays and Saturdays, um, where maybe service starts a little bit later the next day on Saturday and Sunday morning. So there's that time for maintenance. Um, you know, regardless of that, you know, bus can be another um, alternative. BART doesn't have to be the only one providing um, late night transit um, to the East Bay. Um, but I'm glad to see that um, all of this work has been done and just want to thank um, my colleague for his work on this issue and also want to recognize um, the Commission and the Transportation Authority um, for really doing a lot of work around around the study. Thank you very much, Supervisor Kim. And Supervisor uh, so I will uh, thank Supervisor Kim, thank you for those comments. Um, and uh, with that, I will make a motion to uh, file this item. All right. A motion has been made by Supervisor Weiner, seconded by Supervisor Kim. That motion passes. Okay, Madam Clerk, are there any other business? Is there any other business before this body? There's no further business. All right, thank you very much. This committee is closed. Thank you.